0: You really want to mimic nature and the way that that happens as much as possible and create, you know, your overstory layer of trees and then maybe some smaller trees and shrubs and ground covers and all. But you want all the different layers of plants that occur in nature to be ideally in your yard.
1: On today's episode, we have John Romans. We talk shade canopies, soil building, plant root health and how it affects the soil, where to plant, water management and water systems, an intro to biodynamic farming, including the local scene and how farmers and wine growers are using these methods, and finally current weather patterns and what that means for our yards and soil. Please subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast on iTunes and other podcasting apps, and leave positive reviews if you like the show.
0: I think it's a joy to, to connect with the property that you're living on and kind of grow with that property. Hi, I'm uh, John Romans. I'm the owner of Future Roots Regenerative
1: Landscapes. You're located in New Mexico and we have a unique environment here. How did you end up moving here first of all and then can you speak a little bit to
0: wh- what particular problems that we have here? Sure, so I'm actually originally from the uh, Twin Cities area in Minnesota. So pretty big, uh, pretty big difference coming from the land of 10,000 lakes down to, uh, you know, Santa Fe, New Mexico. But um, I got interested in horticulture uh, in my undergraduate studies. I was actually majoring in business and uh, in entrepreneurial management, just took an intro biological, uh, you know, sciences lab course on plant propagation and kind of a general deal and um, just was fascinated by the plants and, you know, all of their different properties and, and kind of went with it from there. So then I ended up uh, double majoring in horticulture and business. Yeah. And then I think uh, that's really interesting
1: to a lot of people who are listening because my podcast has been focused on people doing creative businesses that are focused on the earth. My personal question was always like, what, how are we going to get people to understand what you know more sustainable methods of landscaping so um, when I learned about what you're doing I thought that was really interesting particularly like how what kind of conversations you're having about what you're doing with your customers
0: right so kind of the you know biggest thing right off the bat uh, as far as New Mexico and, and, you know, the high desert and all of that is uh, we have pretty thoroughly depleted soil from, you know, various things that have been happening uh, either via human activity or, or just, you know, over time. My starting point with a lot of customers is to address the soil. Um, we kind of have a, a ground up philosophy, if you will. You know, things need a good substrate and good biological activity and diversity in the soil in order to get a jump start in this pretty harsh uh, climate and landscape that we have. So that's kind of the starting point is, you know, really taking a look at the soil. A lot of times it's been almost completely devegetated, which makes it really difficult to get infiltration by precipitation or even, you know, just your drip irrigation, kind of the supplemental watering programs that a lot of people use. And then, you know, so the biggest things are really soil and then creating shade, Um, you know, kind of create creating a more hospitable environment for understory plants. And so a lot of people say trees are kind of the backbone of the landscape. So I really uh, emphasize getting trees in and and this has numerous benefits from, you know, increasing the energy efficiency of the home. Um, You know, a well-placed tree can actually reduce you know, heating and cooling costs throughout the year by, in some cases, more than 25%, which is pretty significant.
1: No kidding. Wow.
0: Yeah. And then also, you know, at the altitude that we're at, um, you know, our UV index is very high, which means that the sun in many cases, in all cases, is going to be much stronger than, you know, somewhere closer to sea level. So when you go to the nursery and you read on the tag that a plant wants full sun, here in new mexico that's i've found that that's often not the case and it's more like a half day sun or even just you know two or three hours interesting Um, so by by you know setting up that overstory canopy of of shade you allow plants to get either morning or afternoon sun as the sun is rising or setting it will come in at an angle underneath the canopy of the tree and and then during the heat of the day that tree canopy is going to shade those and give them a little bit of a break and, you know, increase moisture retention, reduce evaporation, things like that. And so in New Mexico, so if someone has
1: basically a weed patch in their yard or they're in the countryside, how much you're going to have to bring in new organic matter, right, to supplement the
0: soil? Is that correct?
1: always the case? Okay.
0: Yeah, um, in, in most cases, a lot of people can you know, identify with this, but if you're out hiking or anything like that, you'll notice underneath junipers or pinyon or, or, you know, well-established larger plants, you're going to find, and especially trees in this case, um, you're going to find that the soil has a little bit different quality. There's, it's a little bit darker, um, a little more rich feeling if you pick it up and, you know, rub it between your fingers. It's, it's definitely a rough starting point for landscaping um, because most plants at this point have kind of evolved to hold on to most of their organic matter. Mm -hmm. If you think about walking through a forest, you're you're looking at the ground and you see that there is a layer of humus and and natural mulch that is falling from deciduous trees and various things growing, dying, decaying, uh, and building that soil. And in the desert you have cacti and succulents and, and things like that, that are really holding on to all of that organic matter. So the soil building process is a lot slower, uh, in our location. People in places like Seattle and probably Minnesota,
1: you know, I'm from Seattle and you just throw anything in the ground and then it's fine. Oh, absolutely. Do anything. And then also in lack of water, mm-hmm. can you speak to that a little bit? Is that part of your strategy as a landscaper?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. You look at the whole water cycle and, and the way things are kind of happening. And, um, you know, when, when rain falls, it, can fall at pretty hard onto the ground, um, in some cases up to 30 kilometers an hour. And so you think about that coming down and making impact with the soil. It's actually, there's a term for it, it's called flocculation. So when a raindrop falls and hits the soil, it will kind of shatter the soil particles and that organic matter down to its kind of bare constituents. When that happens, the minerals, tend to sink down to the lowest point and then collect far down as they can infiltrate, which in a lot of cases is not very far. And over time, those minerals will actually build up a layer either on the surface or just below the soil that becomes impermeable. And so, and so by clear, you know, you're talking about weeds and things that a lot of people view as being invasive or kind of nasty and, and undesirable in the landscape, you're actually doing more damage by clearing those away and leaving bare ground because you then get, you know, next to no infiltration of uh, natural precipitation. So a, a big thing that we're doing, you know, obviously compost and kind of revitalizing some of the nutrient levels in the soil, but then uh, mulching is a very important. And and I would argue just absolutely critical piece of landscaping here in New Mexico. Um, And and what's that, what that's doing uh, in, in tandem with, you know, the planting and establishing trees and all of that is covering that soil and protecting it. And so you'll be increasing the level of infiltration when water does arrive. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a, I think a lot of people can, can identify with that as well. You know, you, you see a a big rainstorm in monsoon season or something like that. And a lot of the water is just running. Um, you know, either to arroyos or the side of the road or whatever it may be. And it's really hard for it to soak in. And so I think that is a big part of our water crisis and climactic situation here in Santa Fe so and and New Mexico as well.
1: Interesting. And do you have any insight about the soil food web here locally? Because, I mean, I'm very interested in all the different microbes and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the different components of soil, but what are we dealing with here? A lot of that soil that's really dry. I would imagine, I mean, surely there's fungi in there
0: and yeah. Right. I think there, there is, um, you know, obviously there, there's some stuff in there, but, um, I think it's just at such a depleted level, bringing back more biodiversity and all of that is the, you know, planting and, and doing all of that is the best way to increase that. Um, I don't know too much about uh, specific or I haven't researched into it yet, but you know, specific uh, species or things of that nature uh, in our soil. But, you know, I do know that um, trees and, and especially perennial plants are your best, best bet for revitalizing the soil because what happens with the roots of plants is they're going to be secreting kind of sticky carbohydrates and, and sugary amazing. substances that are going to feed the microorganisms and then what happens as the microorganisms are attracted to that is they you know obviously they contain water they're living organisms um, and they're also coated with a watery membrane around the outside of them right Um, and so they will create more porous space in the soil so just the act of putting roots into the ground will over time increase the soil's ability to hold water yes that
1: seems so critical
0: mm -hmm, absolutely (laughs) absolutely
1: And how, so when you're talking to people, I'm sure that a lot of your customers in Santa Fe are savvy and they know about the soil food web and they know about simple methods to improve their landscape, but Mm -hmm. how do you convert people who aren't there yet? They they just, they are pouring chemicals in their yard. They don't
0: understand
1: Mm -hmm. um, how the ecosystem works
0: yeah um well i kind of you know one way that you can approach it is everybody speaks the language of money so you can approach it from a financial standpoint and Uh you can tell them you know look you can either put this put this mulch down and this compost and then start build and then plant into it and start building your organic matter and your soil health naturally and let nature do the work or you can continue to bring chemicals on weeds and and have a really tough time of of keeping everything under control and you know putting fertilizers in and all that but why not save yourself the money and just take the step in the right direction right off the bat by by just trying to revegetate i think that's a lot of people understand that Mm -hmm. Um, and then especially there's the whole kind of uh the gravel lovers and the mulch lovers you know there's a lot of people really like the aesthetic of gravel And when you kind of just break it down for people, like if you think about gravel, it does increase your drainage, but you know, you're not building any soil, like soil will actually start to build on top of gravel. And so when people are putting down weed barrier and then a couple inches of gravel, yeah, that's great. It's protecting the soil and all of that. But the weeds that you're going to find germinating are usually more pioneer species like your uh, Russian thistle or tumbleweed, uh, kosha, you know, all of those type of things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're windborne seeds. Yes. So what's going to happen is over time the dust is going to blow in or leaves and plant matter will decompose in the gravel, creating kind of a home that most plants will not find desirable, but those pioneer species just love it. You know, that's kind of their ecological role is, is the first movers. And so you'll, You'll find weeds still popping up where you have weed barrier and gravel, but you're not going to get as many of the, you know, wildflowers and native plants and things like that establishing because it's just not that hospitable. So I find that mulch is much more conducive to uh, weed suppression. And, you know, as far as maintenance and things like that as well, you know, if you're hiring a landscaping company to come and clean your gravel and get all the organic matter out of your gravel, you know, some people you have to do it you know, every other week or so. Uh, I see. And with mulch, you can always just, like we like to just pull weeds, drop them right where we pull them out of. And when the mulch needs a refresh, you just bring in a little more mulch and put it down on top. And then you've just added another layer that will eventually decompose into organic matter.
1: As far as like the whole movement around xeriscaping, I think that's part of partly what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I personally, being more involved in soil, I'm interested in, the mulch and the components of the soil what is going on with xeriscaping
0: well i think there's been a a little bit of a shift i know that there was a recent um i, I think it was some sort of xeriscape council summit or something like that but the focus was on creating shade canopies and things like that so I, you know i think that it it makes sense in one in one way because you're you know you are using less water and putting down the gravel is It looks nice and clean. It's very aesthetically pleasing to the human eye. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that people are starting to realize that, you know, increasing soil life and soil health and and actually creating more shade and more things that are deciduous, meaning they're dropping leaves in the fall um, and then, you know, leafing back out in the spring is more beneficial in the long run as opposed to doing the, the gravel and cacti and, you know, kind gotcha, of the yes. min- minimalist type deal. Xeriscaping is basically under-delivered and people are starting to figure that out. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I'm not really sure what, what the origin of the, the gravel aesthetic came from. Um, it might just be, you know, resource availability. There's not that many trees in New Mexico, you know, to make mulch and all of that stuff. And we have most certainly plenty of rock. Um, So (laughs) that -hmm. might be part of it. Oh, and then one other thing that I point out to people with gravel is that it's going to create a lot more heat in the yard. So there's a lot of plants that, you know, don't like that root zone being heated up in that way and and all of that. And it actually can increase your energy bill for your home if your entire yard is graveled rather than mulched. Um, So that's another kind of... That makes sense as far as summer, like air conditioning, maybe, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in the winter,
1: maybe in New Mexico, with a house that's poorly insulated, that could help.
0: Yes, yes, I would agree with that. Um,
1: okay. What about for watering? I mean, the a lot of people I see have the different types of irrigation using ra- rain catchment. Mm-hmm. What What is the most common thing that people are doing? And then also what would you recommend like as far as cost goes and like, what does it cost to even set up a system?
0: Right. So I think, you know, a lot of people are moving to drip and and that's the little emitters where it's the water's actually dripping out. You have various forms of micro sprayers, pop-up sprinklers, uh, and then the hand, hand watering folks who, who like to go out with the hose. And a lot of people find that pretty cathartic to go out and be with their plants. Exactly. Yeah. Which is great. But you know, if you could, save that time and just go sit and do nothing and enjoy the plants, I I would argue that that might be a little more enjoyable. Best way, what I'm recommending for folks, you know, if you bury lines too deep and then you do end up having a leak of some form, it's very hard to detect when it's buried. So I actually recommend doing drip lines on the surface of the ground and then mulching over the top of it so you still get that reduced evaporation effect from the mulch cover but you're also uh, able to detect leaks, you know, should they happen. I would say as far as cost goes, the most costly aspect of it is the labor. It's the install and the the knowledge that comes with putting together a drip system. But parts really are not that expensive. So you can get, you know, probably for your average home in Santa Fe, depending on how many zones and and how specific you want to get, you know, because you can have trees on one zone, shrubs on another, that type of deal, right? Um, it's probably you know within the five to six hundred dollar range, I would say. Just to install um, it, huh? Just to install it. Um, That's so reasonable. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people I think get worked up about it, and they think it's going to be thousands of dollars and and all that. And yes, if you do have a big property, it can be. But there's there's some statistics out there that are saying you can save almost seventy percent of of the water that you were normally using hand watering if you're just doing drip. Yeah, so I mean,
1: it appeals more than just financially. If we really do have a shortage of water here, which some people say is
0: absolutely a fact, Mm -hmm. um, then that's a big deal. We need to be doing that. Right, right. Yeah. So the other thing I was going to mention was by using a drip system, you are going to reduce overall maintenance costs for the property as well, because you're not just like with a pop-up sprinkler, you're covering the whole yard and you're soaking all the soil, which is, it's great to get that moisture into the soil, but you're also gonna have a much higher rate of Weeds. undesirable germination from weed species. So with that targeted dripping action, you're just getting it directly you know, to the roots, you can adjust where the water's going in. And it's also more beneficial for the plant because it's a slower, deeper watering effect than flooding it out with a hose and then letting it soak in and maybe flooding it again. So so we are uh kind of a full spectrum landscaping company. Um, we do everything from design, installation, maintenance, um, just reg, you know consultation. We can just meet with you and and if you want to talk ideas about your property or just get kind of a drawing of some ideas or or concepts that you might be able to put into effect if you're a do it yourselfer, which I absolutely encourage. My my goal with 100% of my customers is to get them in the yard, get them involved. It's, it's very nourishing to the human spirit. Yeah. I,
1: I mean, it makes all the difference in the world when you see someone's yard where they really are emotionally invested in it. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it gets really fun.
0: I think it's, it changes right. people's lives. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts of different, you know, programs now. They're they're putting uh gardening programs into prisons and schools, elderly care homes and things like that. You know, it's it's very proven to make you overall happier.
1: People were saying that you really got to find good gloves, and I said I need I need to be putting my hands into the soil. It's going to ruin my fingers, but I still need to be doing that. It makes me feel so good.
0: I'm I'm so the same way. I'm the same way. I, I, you rarely will find me with gloves on unless I'm, uh, you know, removing tumbleweed or, or choya or something like that. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah.
1: And what about the under the soil stuff? So in, in more moist locations, I think it's probably more common that someone might have a parasitic nematode or some other thing going sure. have, or like a
0: fungal problem. How do, mm-hmm. what do we run into here? And then also how do we fix it? Um, So a couple of things that I've seen are like ground aphids and and some different uh, fungi. And, and kind of my approach to that is to add more, um, you know, there's a lot of different um, microbial solutions, granules, powders, all these different things. But I really try to, uh, when we're doing the initial planting, put those beneficial items in there with the the root mass um, mm-hmm. and just get them established from the get go. So when you're talking about putting those components into the soil, are you talking
1: mainly about the different minerals that are going to attract the microbes, or are you talking um, so about the compost, what, which already has a micro? Um,
0: well, I would I would do both. Um, you know, they make um, kind of like mycorrhizal supplements, uh-huh. uh, and so if you're you know you're planting and you want to do soil amendments in The hole that the tree's going into, they'll make like this little granule that is just concentrated mycorrhizal extracts, I guess you will, if you Mm -hmm. will. Um, And then as you water them in, they'll kind of wake up and and get going and start to associate with those trees' roots, you know, develop over time. But yeah, so we do a little bit of both. We definitely add, obviously, some nutrients because the soil's quite depleted in that department, but also adding the physical mycorrhizae. And and most of these things will have a wide range of species and so you're pretty well covered as far as putting things in that will be able to adapt here in New Mexico. That's so.
1: amazing. Because I the more I read about the exudates and the the mycorrhizal fungus connection that happens, there's every tree has a completely different one, it seems like. Right,
0: right. So that's and about it's, the
1: products already that
0: yeah, yeah. And and they make some that are, you know, a little bit more kind of like broadacre broadcasting type deals where you'll mix them into a hundred gallons and then and then do a spray application on everything and then mulch over the top of that. But I've also found that you can really get some awesome colonization happening just by putting down wood chip mulch. Oh yeah. So if you go back, you know, within a couple months, you'll pull those wood chips apart and just see all this white network you know the the mycorrhizae uh doing their thing so yeah. that's a, that's another factor with the mulch is that it feeds that whole community that we don't always think about or see but but they're definitely there
1: so. and you originally mentioned that cell membrane of the uh bacteria i mean that's where a lot of the moisture is held right so right we right. have to we that's a great thing to be doing
0: yeah no it it definitely should be a priority because just by them being, and, and usually they'll, you know, like you were saying, associate with specific plants. So creating the greatest amount of biodiversity in your landscape plant wise will also then in turn create the greatest amount of biodiversity below the soil. So you're just kind of bringing in all hands on deck and, uh, and giving everybody a, a piece of the landscape. That's awesome. And would you say that most people don't know about this
1: stuff? Most of your customers that you're dealing with?
0: I think it's less talked about. Yeah, I I think definitely it's one area, you know, we don't really think about soil health. I mean, you think about soil health in general, but then you don't really know what to do about it. It's just like put in more compost and, you know, more nutrients or or whatever. But, you know, I I have noticed that there's a lot of great programs going on here in Santa Fe and elsewhere that are doing a great job of, of educating people like the Master Gardeners Association and all of that. So I have gotten a few new clients where they're already well versed on this stuff and I'm kind of like oh awesome like I don't have to give you the spiel on everything you know we're we're already on the same page so um so yeah I I think it's definitely a growing awareness and which rightly so it's very important so great well I guess one other question that I kind of had on back burner was about like native
1: grasses or ornamental grasses maybe they're not native but (laughs) I know that they can put you know the rhizomes and they put a root down so far i mean they can pull up so many nutrients and also contain a lot of moisture probably with the fungus too right um, do you what do you know about grasses and what do you how do you use them
0: um so grasses are really nice when you have a little bit broader acreage you know if you want to establish a meadow or things like that wildflowers and grasses are a great way to go I do tend to recommend trees, especially shade trees um, more so than grasses just because I think the benefits are a little bit more numerous with trees. Um, But you know, grasses are definitely a close second. Like you were saying, they have quite deep roots and and very fibrous roots. So they're very good for erosion control if you have a steep slope or something like that. Um, But you know, trees just kind of create that bigger area of shade. Um, and and support more layers of biodiversity beneath them. Whereas mm-hmm. grasses, it's kind of you put the grasses in, they fill in, and you you know you can have wildflowers and things like that in there. But it's not a whole lot of room for a that ton makes of sense. evolution. So makes if, sense. if that makes sense, so
1: yeah. And what about aspen trees? I know they're really popular, but they also, people have so many problems with their aspen trees.
0: They are just way below their elevation. Um, You know, they really want to be up in the mountains. And, um, and so one thing I would say, if you want to, if you absolutely need an aspen tree and that's like your, you know, your uh, one thing that you want to have to look at in your yard, plant them in groups. Because they are um, their community plant. Like if you look at you know the groves up in the especially in the Santa Fe uh, ski basin, you know those are all a lot of those are just one big organism. They, right. they spread through their roots and they put very little energy into self defense. Kind of what happens is when an aspen gets into trouble, it goes into automatic reproduction mode. So you'll often see a plant that is infected with something cytospora or aphids or black spot and then it's putting up all these little baby aspens around it Mm -hmm. and so i encourage people to either if it's bad enough remove the tree Um, otherwise you know you could do things like super thrive uh, which is kind of like a general multivitamin fertilizer um, that's low dosages of a lot of different things and it'll kind of help balance the nutrients out for the tree and increase its um, ability to fight back. But but really you just want to let those little guys grow up uh, because they're you know they're just trying to help and, and make the organism a little bigger. So they tend to fare better. I, I'd recommend planting them on the north side of the house where they're getting a little bit of a break from the sun. It's a huge headache to have to to maintain either specific supplement regimens of, of nutrients or constantly spraying them with fungicides or insecticides and it, it can be a huge cost to own aspens so Very i typically just steer people clear of those from the get-go but you know they're i don't have anything against the tree I, they're absolutely gorgeous and i love them but you know it i do think that things should be a plant planted where appropriate and uh, if you go too far outside of those parameters then you're just going to be asking for a maintenance nightmare so
1: makes sense originally when we connected i was really curious about biodynamic farming i know you said that's not your expertise but and mm-hmm. but i am curious if you want to speak in whatever capacity you can sure um, southern out there things
0: i got in into permaculture uh originally you know kind of from the big university horticulture scene and then through a friend and an extended stay living down in costa rica I was exposed to this concept of permaculture and looking at things more holistically and just the bigger picture of everything. Was then introduced from my significant other to biodynamics. She was a Waldorf student, so very involved. Mm-hmm. In the philosophies and teachings of Rudolf Steiner, who is kind of the, the founder of biodynamics. And it's just very holistic. It has you look at the, you know, piece of land or a farm or someone's uh, landscape as a you know, full-blown organism. So you have the, from the microbes to the trees to the plants that visit your yard, all of these things are interacting either through different energy or nutrient exchanges and different ways of benefiting each other. And so I've found that biodynamics is just so cool because it, it emphasizes and the goal is to create this new vitality and, and foster all of these relationships between the different aspects of this whole organism. It's almost, what is that word, terroir that they use with mm-hmm. with wine, which is kind of that uh, uniqueness of place. And, and biodynamics is very much in the same boat as, as that concept where, you know, you have unique living organism that is your land. All of those things are interacting and sharing energies and, and all of that in a specific way. So if you think about it, like, you have a flower growing and then a rabbit eats the flower and then the rabbit poops out the waste and that waste can, contains both the essence of the flower to some extent and the essence of the animal. And then that goes back into the land. And so you're kind of creating this concentration of events happening and, and organisms happening on your land.
1: Oh, cool. I didn't know that it, they took it to that level. Very- yeah,
0: I mean, it's it's a little out there for some people. It can seem a little woo-woo, um, but I actually I had the opportunity to attend the International Biodynamic Conference. Uh, I guess it was three years ago now. It was hosted in Santa Fe, and you know, I was sitting in some of these lectures, and you know, it's it's pretty out there stuff. Like there's a lot of these different preparations that are called for, and it usually consists of some part of an animal and some part of a plant and you combine those things. And then you're using kind of the cosmic cycles and lunar cycles and burying those on, you know, like let's say on the summer solstice, and then you dig it up on the winter solstice or things like that. So it's very much very
1: ritualistic.
0: Yes. Um, but, but then, uh, so I'm sitting in this course and I'm sitting next to this gentleman and and they're going over an overview of all the different preparations. And I'm kind of, I have this look on my face and the guy must've seen it because he looked over at me and he was like, he was like, you're not buying it. Are you? And I was like, I don't, I mean, it's a little, a little out there for me. You know, it seems a little bit woo woo or whatever. And he was like, well, you know, I felt the same way and I'm an apple grower in upstate New York. And I was like very skeptical of all of this until Several years in a row, he, um, you know, he was a biodynamic practitioner and, and applying these preparations on his orchards. There were several years where there's one preparation that uses a part of the valerian plant, mm-hmm. um, which is supposed to have warming properties. And so it's supposed to be a frost protection spray that you would apply the night before a late freeze and it'll theory protect your blooms. And he was telling me that all of those years where they had these random late freezes and more erratic weather patterns, like 95% of his competition didn't have apples that year. And he had apples. So he was, he was using these, these uh, preparations and it was working for him. So he was like, you know, I'm coming at it from a practical sense. I'm a businessman. I need to make a profit and feed my family and all of that. And this stuff works. So at that point I was kind of like, huh, this is interesting. Someone who's not super out there personality wise, but more practical and maybe a little more grounded, Mm -hmm. um, still sees a lot of value in this. Well, that's
1: very cool. I think it'll definitely be appealing to many people in this area who happen to be woo woo. And
0: even if they're not,
1: I, I do think that it's great that it makes people think about it all in a very different way because that's how we figure out how to balance our planet. If it is just ritual, Mm -hmm. uh, at least people are really thinking outside of the box and getting into their yards in a different way. Indigenous people have been using lunar cycles forever, so maybe it just connects people to that a little bit better.
0: Well, and another interesting thing at this conference, there was a team up from Mexico that were also, uh, you know, giving a presentation, and they were talking about, you know, some of the the older indigenous peoples of that area of Central America. It's almost an exact parallel of these preparations that Steiner, who was from Europe, came up with. They were doing it, but with their available resources. So where it was cow manure in a cow horn being buried it was goat manure in a coconut or something like that. So it was using their available resources, but for the same end goal. And, and it was almost an exact, I believe it was Aztec people. I might be mistaken. I was Aztec or Mayan, but you know, so there's these records of of this stuff going on in different areas of the world and, and boasting the same effects or the same intent. So Amazing. that was pretty interesting. You've introduced people to what it is because I think most people have no idea. Right, right. You know, it's some dense stuff, but I would encourage you to just maybe look up a couple books. They've got a lot of different introductory kind of texts on the subject. And there's also a local Southwest biodynamic group that meets at the Santa Fe Waldorf School. Oh, okay. Um, And and so, you know, I've gotten involved with that. And I'm also a member of the Biodynamic Association, kind of the umbrella association but you know so we'll meet a couple times a year and we do the different preps and you know we make enough for everybody to have some and I think it's only like 20 bucks to you know just to kind of cover materials and things like that but um, you know really cool group of people and and a lot of those people have been practicing this and studying this for you know longer than I've been alive you know for 30 or 40 years so Mm -hmm. a lot more knowledgeable than myself
1: And and a lot of them are farmers
0: Yes, uh, Melinda Bateman is kind of the organizer for that group, and she runs a farm up in Taos called Morningstar Farm. I okay. um, believe she's Demeter certified, which is kind of like the organic certification equivalent for biodynamics. Yeah, so a lot of these folks either have you know, a homescale farm or a homestead, or they're just interested in it. I know that there's one couple who has like a cosmetics company, but they also do, they have, I think, some vineyards out towards Abiquiu. Um, oh meat but but it's gotten huge in especially in the wine community, you know the biodynamic They figured out that those subtle
1: energies really affect the grapes, huh
0: yeah, yeah, and you know there's a lot of the you know wine tasters or aficionados that that claim that it's it makes a huge difference, and you can taste it so it's uh, it's very interesting stuff, Wow, no kidding, so we were kind of talking about you know soil and the interaction and relationship with trees and perennials and deeper rooted. Plants, Um, Yeah. And I just uh, actually through the Biodynamic Association just participated in a webinar that was very enlightening as far as the weather patterns that we're seeing now and the correlation between that and the level of devegetation that's happening on the earth as a whole. Devegetation and soil erosion. I'm sure everybody knows or has noticed that it's a little windy this year. One thing that's happening with that is, you know, as you devegetate, so you think about the water cycle, the water evaporates off the ocean and it starts moving inland, and then it will condense and rain. And then trees will, you know, in an ideal situation, it'll hit a forest and rain. The trees will evapotranspire the water back up. And so it kind of creates this circling movement of up and down, and it, it almost leapfrogs from planted area to planted area where it can get that regeneration of water to, to form more clouds and continue inland. So when you have a vast devegetated area, that doesn't really happen. You end up getting these huge buildups, um, which you know, we're seeing right now, especially on the coasts with all the hurricanes and, and large storm events. Basically what's happening is you're getting a huge rain event on a devegetated area, and then you're getting a mass evaporation event. And mm-hmm. and due to the heat that's going on, the water's going higher, and then it goes farther away. That change in temperature, like the the very great te- change in temperatures that we're seeing right now is, is causing this wind to come in. But that's kind of where a lot of that is coming from. And so revegetating the landscape and doing trees and perennials and water catchment and all of that is going to help Moderate temperatures and therefore moderate weather events create a little bit more stability, and so I, I really think that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, in the high it desert is areas, small. Just, I mean, just maintaining
1: that moisture helps so much. But I mean, it sounds like it's also a worldwide movement. We have to, as a species, just evolve our practices so that we're not. I mean, the 20th century farming brought us forward, but now that's over. We need to
0: figure out what's next right right and so i you know just kind of taking a little lesson from the way nature structures itself and trying to replicate in the landscape the human created landscape you know you can you can do an intelligent design and then manage that but you really want to mimic nature and the way that that happens as much as possible and create you know your overstory layer of trees and then maybe some smaller trees and shrubs and ground covers and all but you want all the different layers of plants that occur in nature to be ideally in your yard. And I think you'll see the lasting effects. And sometimes it takes a little while for everything to, to kick in and you do have to do supplemental irrigation and all of that stuff. A little bit of planning goes a long way as far as landscaping. So that's awesome. And yeah. I've heard
1: people say it takes 13 years to make a landscape.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, usually with, um, you know, permaculture design and that a lot of people will say that it pops after seven or eight years and you'll really start to see the benefits of a well thought out planting. We try to do things like nitrogen fixers for fruit trees so that you'll have better fruit set. And, um, you know, like dandelions are very beneficial to fruit trees. They produce, I believe it's ethylene from from the blooms and it it will encourage the fruit to set. We're in kind of a... A rough spot right now, you know the weather's getting more erratic, and I think everybody's really feeling that this this season, as far as the heat and temperature fluctuations and the lack of moisture and all of that and so I think that you know if we get planting and get things in the ground, that we can really make a difference you know and also erosion as well is another huge point of, you know that we need to address here in Santa Fe because a lot of people design their yards to shed water. And when you do that, you're just, you're washing your topsoil away. And it's mm-hmm. becoming an issue for someone else down the food chain, if you will, or down that flow of water. So I, th- I think they're estimating right now that the earth is losing about 1% of our global topsoil per year. And we've lost about 50% of global topsoil in the last 150 years. Amazing. So it's uh, it's looking a little bit bleak and that, you know, they're saying in the next 60 years, there might not be topsoil left to plant into. I think we've lost 30% of, of arable land, like farmable land um, in the last 50 years.
1: I personally have a lot of faith in the the microbes and the, the fungi that they're working with, but I think mm-hmm. that it's going to be saving us at the last minute, maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, you know, it's another kind of saving grace of mulch is it's protecting your soil and it's keeping it where it is. Doing all that, like berms and swales, passive rainwater catchment, all of that is just... It's, you know, kind of the the best case scenario as far as how we can address these issues.
1: That's great information. How can people reach you if they're um, local and they want to have your consultation or something?
0: Yes. So I can be reached at futurerootslandscapes with an S at gmail.com. And then my personal number, it's a Madison area code still. I haven't switched over, but uh, 608-212-3311.
1: All right. Well, very nice to meet you, John. Thank you so much. I appreciate all your
0: thoughtful answers. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me, Aaron.